Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by Just Crack an Egg. You want to talk about great production value? How about a legit, hot, fluffy breakfast scramble that's packed with all your favorite ingredients? It's called Just Crack an Egg, and all you have to do is add a fresh egg over their hearty ingredients, then stir, microwave, and enjoy any day of the week. It takes less than two minutes to make. Find all seven varieties of Just Crack an Egg in the egg aisle. I need support staff to clear the room. Stand up and walk. Now. Hello and welcome to The Watch. My name is Chris Ryan. I'm an editor at TheRinger.com. And today on The Watch, a bunch of different guests. I was really psyched to be joined by David Sims, a writer over at The Atlantic, one of my favorite pop culture writers. And David's been writing really astutely about streaming wars, which we often talk about here on this podcast, but the different, the changing of the landscape of all these different companies who are accumulating so much content, these huge content libraries, and how we're going to pay for it, and how we're going to watch it, and when we're going to watch it. So David's been writing about that this week, I believe. Warner Media. it was reported that their price point for their service when it comes, which would be HBO and whatever else they offer on in terms of the Warner Library, in terms of whatever original programming they're offering, that's going to be $17 a month. And you start adding this stuff up, And you basically are getting back to what your cable bill was in the first place if you start subscribing to a bunch of these different streaming services. And David had a really good way of putting it, I thought, in his most recent Atlantic piece, where he just talked about how we are leaving the Wild West era of streaming. We are leaving that era where you could sign up for Netflix, have hundreds of episodes of Friends in the Office, hundreds of movies that you wanted to watch, and an increasing amount of original programming that you were really into, like, Orange is the New Black or House of Cards or whatever. We're leaving that era where all these companies now are taking back their content or if you want to buy their content, if you're Netflix, you're going to have to pay a huge fee for it. And they're all going to be offering their own subscription models, their own services. And where's the breaking point with that? What happens when people are like, you know what? I can only really subscribe to two. What happens to the attention economy around the titles that are on those other streaming services that aren't Netflix and Hulu or aren't Hulu and Apple or aren't Disney and Warner, what happens to them? Are we going to be talking about television in the same way going forward? And what happens to the sort of brand identities of some of these networks that I think over the last 10 years have really dominated our popular idea of television, whether it's FX or AMC or HBO or Showtime or whatever, what happens is those things start to become part of larger umbrella services rather than standalone channels. So it was a really interesting conversation with David Sims from The Atlantic. You can read him in The Atlantic and you can listen to his podcast, Blank Check, which is a really great movie podcast. Speaking of movie podcasts, I was also joined by Sean Fennessy, who's the host of The Big Picture, as well as being chief content officer over here at The Ringer and my friend. And he and I talked a little bit about Fleabag season two. I know I've discussed that with Andy, but I just don't feel like stopping talking about Fleabag because it's the the best thing I've seen this year. So Sean and I talked a little bit about Fleabag season two. We talked a little bit about Martin Scorsese's Bob Dylan documentary that's on Netflix this week. And we chatted a little bit about the Nicholas Wending Refn show, Too Old to Die Young. And then at the end of this episode, I was joined by producer Kyra McMullen. And we talked a little bit about our love for the society on Netflix. So it's a full show. Let's get into it. So now I'm joined by David Sims. David is a staff writer at The Atlantic, and he's the co-host of the Blank Check podcast, which is one of the best movie podcasts you can listen to. Uh, David and I have very similar tastes, although if I remember correctly, I think an exception to that rule is Day of the Soldado. Am I right, David? I'm sorry. I couldn't. I couldn't. I couldn't get there with that one. It's okay. I, I love the I love the first one. Yeah, 
Yeah. Uh, so the, uh, you know, uh, yeah. Uh, thank, thank you for having me. No, of course. And David is one of the most astute kind of chroniclers of the changing nature of how we watch what we watch and crucially, increasingly, what it costs us. And I'm really excited to have him on the watch for the first time. And David, you just wrote a piece in The Atlantic that, broadly speaking, is about the end of the Wild West era of streaming. And I was wondering if just for the listeners who haven't gotten a chance to read that yet, I'll put a link, obviously, with the with the podcast. But can you sort of outline what it is you're talking about there? Yeah, it's that idea. And I said that phrase to my editor and her eyes lit up. She was like, oh, yeah, the can that be your lead, please? And I was like, <laughs> okay, okay, sure. The, the Wild West of streaming, which is like the last 10 years or so, ever since this whole streaming media, you know, subscriber-based services, you know, ever since they all got started up, we've all gotten fat on these Netflixes and Hulus that basically were just buying up um, movie and TV rights from any network that would sell them to, you know, give to the masses for like nine or ten bucks a month. And we all enjoyed that, and we all had a great time watching these shows that their corporate owners didn't really know what to do with in terms of streaming. They were like, hey, well, sure, you want the office reruns? Take them. Like, you know. And now that this is the dominant form of taking in your entertainment, all of the corporate overlords are pulling back and saying, like, hey, if you want the rights to friends, it's going to cost you $100 million a year. And so suddenly, instead of just, like, everyone needing a Netflix subscription, you're going to need, like, eight subscriptions to watch all the content you want to watch. Yeah, and you described it a little bit. I think you call it the, the we're going to leave the Wild West era, we're going to enter the silo era, right? Yeah. It kind of reminds me a little bit of the transition that happened, gosh, I can't even really put a pinpoint on the date, but I would imagine it would be about 10 years ago, it's in eight years ago, where when we moved out of like soul-seek Napster P2P music sharing, hundred percent. And then into right. like the major streaming services that you were just like, you know what, fuck it. I'll just pay $10 a month and not have to worry about it. <laughs> Thank you for shouting out SoulSeek, by the way. Yeah, that was course. my preferred <laughs> P2P of choice. Shout out to LimeWire. Um, shout out to all the all the dead soldiers out there <laughs> where I used to get my yeah, Afghan wigs bootlegs. Uh, <laughs> well, that's exactly right. And uh, yeah, everyone eventually sort of bit the bullet and was like, sure, I'll... I'll pay up for Spotify or Apple Music or whatever, but that only costs uh, ten bucks. And I think the thing that companies like Disney and Warner Brothers got all worried about is like we're gonna have to pay, we're gonna have to charge people like money, and they're already paying for Netflix and they're maybe already paying for HBO. Like, are they gonna be interested in? adding like, you know, more and more monthly subscriptions to their, like, you know, are we going to be able to get people back to this sort of cable bill days where like you just kind of paid a hundred bucks or more a month for your TV and you didn't even really think about it? Or has it been too long in this kind of cheapo cord cutting era? Like, you know, are we going to be able to swing back? Yeah. I mean, that's the, those are the two that you just hit on basically the two topics mostly that I wanted to talk to you about. They're sure. they're both kind of cruel jokes in their own way, but one is affordability and one is identity in terms of whether or not networks or channels or services or whatever you want to call the people who are providing you with television shows, you know, brand identities, for lack of a better term. Because I think one of the reasons I got so interested about this topic over the last couple of years is I was seeing from some of the younger people I work with pretty much just like a completely changed behavior 
in terms of their relationship to television. Because like you were saying, they if they had Netflix, they essentially had the syndicated TV that you and I grew up with probably, right? Like getting to go home right. and just like watch like three episodes of How I Met Your Mother because it was just on channel 11. Right. And then they also had a, a video store. And then they also had increasingly a competitor with HBO's level television in Netflix where you could watch House of Cards, you could watch Orange is the New Black or whatever, and you would have that experience of getting to watch an entire season in a weekend if you wanted to. And I've just seen totally. more and more of them say, yeah, I don't have cable, I have Netflix, or I don't have cable, I have PlayStation View, or in some cases, not to narc on anyone, but they would resort to piracy for it. And now you're going to see this this basically this proposition made by Hollywood and, and Silicon Valley that they're like, yeah, you may be paying like almost upwards of $200 a month for your cable and internet. We're going to ask you to pay 150 and we're going to make it pretty onerous to kind of keep track of all your different subscriptions, all your different platforms and figuring out what is available where. Right. I mean, that's what Apple TV plus or whatever they're calling it. And and what Amazon sort of TV like desktop that's those services are trying to like bundle. They're trying to be yeah. cable where it's like here's your Amazon offerings, but then also you have Netflix. So here's Netflix. Here's what they got. Here you you, you subscribe to Stars. All right, here's what Stars is. You know, I have all these carousels now on my TV that are like, hey, you know, you don't like what HBO's got? Oh, well, let's look around. Like maybe you know, you want some uh, Criterion Channel? Like, yeah. You want some Art House? Like you know. And I guess that's our future. Yeah, I mean, it's certainly going to make what you and I do a little bit more difficult because it's going to further erode any kind of a a consensus about when anyone is watching anything at any given time. A hundred percent. I mean, you know, obviously you've talked about Game of Thrones a ton and we've all sort of had this elegy for it as like the last water cooler show. I don't know if there'll be another one. I think... The thing that's been so interesting about Netflix of late, about like shows like you that people ignored on cable and came around to nine months later, is that no one cared that they weren't seeing it first. Like whatever magic there was about, like oh yeah, no, I need HBO because I've got to see X like right away, seems to not be a consideration for a younger generation. They're like, yeah, I'll get to it. Yeah, I mean, it remains to be seen what Apple's you know, the extent to which Apple is going to try and position themselves as like the cable box of the 21st century. But I do find it kind of bizarre that I'm being, even somebody like me, and I'm sure somebody like you who probably is a little bit more aware of the studios that make certain things or the sort of corporate ownership of something like, you know, something like even a Marvel movie. We're like a little bit more tuned into that than maybe like our moms are or something. But Increasingly, people are going to be asked to understand that because they will have to go to a Comcast standalone app to watch The Office. And what I'm really yeah. curious about is things like Friends, things like you, like you're talking about, that were kind of hits. Yes, they have like a resonance, but they were also like successful because of the ease of access. Whether or not you start to see a little bit of a dip of those kinds of stories because people are like, yeah, I like The Office, but I don't know that I need a Comcast app to watch it. It was fine when it was on Netflix. I'll replace it with something else now. That's probably true. I mean, I mean, this is why it's so frustrating, obviously, that we don't have like any kind of viewership data for any of these companies anymore. 
as much as data can be boring, like the only thing I get to go off of is Netflix ponying up a hundred million dollars for friends, Mm -hmm. which I, you know, I see that and I'm like, okay, I guess you guys like are looking at the sheets and you're like, yeah, okay. uh, People will not give up on friends. Like people will follow friends wherever it goes. But I mean, you might be right. Maybe once friends leaves Netflix, people just click over and, I don't know. They can be like, hey, did you ever watch Caroline in the City? I exactly. Mean, you know, same basic vibe. They're in New York. It's the 90s. <laughs> yeah. you know, what, do you, what do you care? Yeah. I don't know. And it is, for so many years, and especially in the network era, you'd occasionally have that conversation with someone where they'd be like, well, why did this network cancel that show? And you'd just try to get into the vagaries of like, well, the studio that made that show actually was, you know, different. You know, Warner Brothers made it, but NBC had it. And, you know, sometimes... Networks aren't into that, and like it's so inside baseball. But now it's going to become just like the branding of every show is going to become kind of crucial to remember. Like you're saying, yeah. And that was actually one of the reasons why I was among several that I was sort of surprised about one day at a time getting canceled. Is that I thought the smartest thing for Netflix to do wasn't necessarily to build up a catalog of like Alfonso Cuarón movies. Not that I'm mad that they are underwriting those, but would be to like. Basically, send things like the ranch and one day at a time into their own in-house syndication, so that there yeah. was just sitting there a hundred episodes of something for someone to just be like, "Oh, I'm just gonna watch, I'm just gonna watch one day at a time for like the next month," you know. And that that I don't know what the price point is on that. I don't know how economically doable that is, but it would seem to me that that kind of like basically recreating the syndication experience, which I don't think is like a it's kind of an undefeated way of, of making things because you're just like, this is going on forever. We can, can keep people on the product. We can keep people on this. And if we can figure out the margins right, it's, an, it's an, a cost-effective way of doing it. I'm surprised that they haven't really invested more in like getting 100 episodes of a sitcom off the ground. Right. The old, or not that old, but the, the, the 1090 model, right? Where they would be like, Let's make a few. People like them. We'll just we're just going to make a ton of them. Yeah. We'll make these things in bulk. We'll be like the Costco of sitcoms. Well, the other thing I was going to ask you about is outside of the affordability and outside of the logistics of actually, you know, like as you really well described there, like this idea that your TV is nothing but carousels now. There's also, right. um, and and I feel almost silly saying this because this isn't like mid '90s indie rock labels we're talking about. We are talking about like subsidiaries of major corporations. But I do wonder whether the siloing will, in some way, lead to the disappearance of any kind of identity for any of these networks. Because, like, you know, whether it was the meat and potatoes part of CBS or the you know, the air of quality that HBO and FX had, or even something like Cinemax doing kind of bare-knuckled genre stuff for a couple of years there. Different networks did have different, like, aesthetics. And I kind of now wonder whether if each of these stream platforms needs to have a four-quadrant enough content to keep kids involved, to keep peak TV prestige fans involved, to keep reality people involved, all the stuff that they have to generate... I wonder whether or not that inevitably will lead to something like FX not necessarily no longer existing, but no longer having like the sort of formal experimentation that we kind of associate with it. I think you're right. I mean, I will say about FX, like Disney is a a funny one because Disney is so obsessed with keeping the Disney brand name 
giving it the sheen that you're talking about, where like you know what a Disney project is, and if it's not a Disney project, then it can be a Marvel or a Star Wars, but it could also be Fox now or FX because they have these these you know companies under their umbrella. So if it's a little more grown up, maybe we'll make it a Fox project. But I think. With something like Warner Media, which is this new corporate beast, that's why I was writing this article. You know that combined like Warner Brothers and AT and T uh, and Turner Broadcasting together in this big merger. They're preparing for like a streaming service that will be what you're talking about, where it's just everything. It's there. Yeah. There's not anything to the. You know, maybe there'll be little labels you can click around within it, but like it's going to have HBO. It's going to have Cinemax. It'll have probably like CNN, it's going to have True TV. It'll have all of these identities, you know, smushed into one giant package because these companies are so afraid of Netflix and so afraid of like the fire hoses of content that come out of these, you know, tech startups that they think the only way to need it is with size. And, you know, I've never understood why that has to be the way, like, you know, why the only the only thing you can do is be gigantic anymore, but for now it does seem like every company's idea is, yeah, let's be as gigantic as possible. It's the only way to get attention. Yeah, and I wonder whether or not some of those smaller streaming services that have popped up over the years, like a like a Shutter, sure. I mean, Filmstruck was was sort of separate, uh, but but specifically something like Shutter that's a genre based thing that's like they're asking for whatever amount of dollars they're asking for per month, and they're trying to serve a very specific audience, whether that's you're going to see an era of mergers and acquisitions for stuff like that, whether there will be Warner Media is like, you know what, that looks pretty tasty. Like, we don't have a lot of horror movies. Let's just buy Shudder, and we'll put that under our umbrella, and we'll bundle it in with the $17 that you have to pay for Warner Media every month. That's going to be an interesting one. The Warner one, I know that was the one that sort of prompted this piece, because that's at, I yeah. think right now the highest price point that people of any of these publicized ones, Apple so far has not said what Apple Plus will cost. Disney and Disney Disney Plus, as we refer to it here, uh, that it has got <laughs> a relatively low price uh, and will probably right. be bundled with Hulu and ESPN in some fashion when it's available. But the Warner one is, I think they're basically operating off of. Well, you pay 15 bucks a month for HBO anyway. For a few more dollars more, we'll give you the Warner Movie Library. We'll give you TNT, TBS, um, True TV. Right. And one would assume, like they announced, that Denis Villeneuve was going to be uh, working on a, um, a Dune spinoff for Warner Media. So they're already starting to invest in original content for their streaming service. But that's a, that's a lot of money, man. <laughs> like 17 bucks a month. Is, 17 bucks is a big ass. If you're not delivering toilet paper to me overnight for like for free, it's kind of <laughs> wild that it's like $17 a month. You're not wrong. And like, right. Disney's approach is like, let's just put it as low as possible. Who cares? We're a giant company and we'll figure it out. We'll figure out if it's profitable later, which has kind of been Netflix's approach too. The whole game of these things is subscribers. They just want those subscriber numbers because, I mean, you can probably attest to this. I certainly can. Like, I've been a Netflix subscriber for however many years. Once in a while, I get an email where they're like, you pay 13 bucks now. Yeah. And I'm like, okay. Yeah. Like, you know, I, I don't even think about it. Like, it's Netflix. I'm not going to get rid of it now. And so I guess Warner Warner will try with the, the HBO pitch. Uh, you know, if you want to watch the Game of Thrones spinoff, here's how. And once you're in, they can start to like nudge the prices up. 
the thing that I keep coming around to that I was writing about in this article is like, eventually it's just going to be cable again. Mm-hmm. This is this is the life cycle of this kind of a business. Like cable was cheap once too, and and then you know they would just nudge your bill up, and then you'd call them, and they'd be like, oh okay, and you know like it's there's that eternal war over your cable bill, just creeping upwards. But eventually something's going to just bundle all these services together for you and you're just going to have a cable subscription again. Yeah. And that's the thing that like it used to be thought of as cutting the cord and this sort of like consumers had gamed out a way to spend less on entertainment every month. And this is the, this right. is the counter move. This is, well, we're just going to keep enticing you and making you feel left out and giving you FOMO if you don't have Fleabag season two, so you got to get that Amazon Prime membership, or you if you don't have Handmaid Tale, so you got to get that Hulu membership. And if they just keep adding and adding and adding, you're gonna just get back to cable, except it's gonna be actually at least a less convenient version of cable. And that's the one thing that I was gonna ask you about to close is, I you know I know that you're a sports fan too. Mm-hmm. I think sports fans might be the final frontier here because I don't I don't mind seeking out and having to negotiate with myself to watch uh, anything from Perpetual Grace Limited to Fleabag to Dark on Netflix. Like, I understand my taste and I know that what it's going to cost me. But man, when it comes to sports, right. I kind of just want it to be right there. I don't want to have to log in to yep. watch the NBA Finals. I agree. I mean, I miss what we've been talking about, which is the old, like, get home, flop on the couch, turn on TV. Oh, it's a Mary Tyler Moore rerun. Sure. You know, and sports to me should be that mm-hmm. like, it shouldn't be like, you know, my Apple watch chimes and I'm like, Oh, it's the appointed hour. Let me load the ESPN plus app, like, or whatever, <laughs> yeah. whatever the future is going to look like. I mostly watch basketball and I watch, I will admit, like I, I often will just fire up, you know, a league pass and I'll sort of click around and it's not too bad, but I think that League Pass is still a relatively niche option. Like, mm-hmm. sports is the one magic thing that, like, none of these tech companies have been able to crack. They, it's exactly what you described. Like, it's it's the broadest audience in America, and they don't want to work for their sports. They they just want to watch them. Yeah, and, and when you um, talk about people yeah. who are pretty into sports, and I would, I would say anecdotally, I would especially ascribe this to football fans. They're just like... I don't really care what is happening. I just really want to have the simplest path possible to get to watch football three times a week. Yeah. It's, ESPN, I feel like, could have figured this out and maybe will eventually, but like they've been slow on the uptake. And that's understandable because they had the most bulletproof model in broadcasting. Yes. Like they didn't really need to change anything. And it's just now getting to be, you know, to the point where people are cutting their cable cords enough that I, they have to sort of start turning the cruise ship around. Uh, so you're right. though. like, whenever, whenever there's some big announcement about what you're talking about, the sort of Disney Hulu ESPN bundle that actually is going to let me watch Sunday, Monday night football, whatever it is. Uh, I guess that's when the Wild West, right? That's that's when Deadwood finally like gets annexed into the Dakotas, <laughs> right. right? Like right. That, that's it. Bob that's, Iger that's is moment. Hearst. 
And he's like, I'm yeah. holding the yeah, Jacksonville Jags. That's right. I'm holding the Jags versus the Titans on Monday night as hostage. And you're going to have to bundle it to get to see it. Oh, man. I can't right, wait for that. That's when you sell your claim. You're like, all right, fine. It's over. Absolutely. All right, David, thank you so much for joining me, man. I'm going to let you go. You can read David's incredible writing on The Atlantic, and you can listen to him on the Blank Check podcast. I recommend both very highly. David, thank you so much for calling into The Watch. Chris, thank you. I'll be back anytime. Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by DC Universe, the first all-DC platform for us DC fans. Join at dcuniverse.com and get sucked into the new original series like the highly touted Titans or catch up on favorites like Krypton Season 1. Starting May 31st, jump into new episodes of Swamp Thing dropping weekly and follow Abby Arcane as she investigates what seems to be a deadly swamp-borne virus in a small town in Louisiana. She soon discovers that the swamp holds mystical and terrifying secrets. You can also get your comic book fix with thousands of new comic titles just added to an already impressive comic library. This includes more recent titles and complete storylines like Superman, Secret Origin, Batman 2011, and Harley Quinn 2013. Also available on the platform are tons of the classic DC movies we love, like Batman and the original Superman movie. If animated films are your speed, Reign of the Superman and Justice League versus The Fatal Five are now available, and you can access DC Universe on your favorite devices. Join and get a year's worth of DC content at dcuniverse.com. Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by Heinz Mayonnaise. Heinz Mayonnaise transforms ordinary foods into an unforgettably creamy experience. You may forget your coworkers' names, your mom's birthday, or what happened three seasons ago on the show everyone's talking about, but you will never forget a delicious potato salad made with creamy Heinz mayonnaise. Foods made with Heinz mayonnaise won't just be the unforgettably creamy highlight of your week. They may well be your highlight of your 30s. Slather it onto a mouth-watering turkey club, incorporate it into your tuna salad, mix it into a luscious garlic aioli, layer it on a thick cheddar cheeseburger, or spread it on a BLT because the unforgettable creaminess hours later, you'll be telling everyone with an earshot just how good it was. Look, I'm not going to lie. I love Heinz mayonnaise. I particularly like it on BLTs. I think that BLTs are a pretty good sandwich on their own. But I think that you should call them BLTMs because I don't think they're the same without the right amount of mayo. So that's just my take. But Heinz creamy mayonnaise on a BLT... That's a home run for me. Leave the boring old blah mayonnaise on the shelf where it belongs and try something new. The unforgettably creamy Heinz mayonnaise and the new Heinz mashups. Mayo chup, mayo Q, mayo must, and crunch. All right. I'm joined now by my buddy, Sean Fennessy. You know, what, what happens now on this podcast is that a show comes out. We hit it once, usually pretty hard. We're just like, great job, bad job, whatever. We move on because there's so much stuff to get to, but I don't think I've ever seen something have the uniform adaptation that that Fleabag has, the second season of Fleabag has, and it's been a joy seeing other people around me in my life just be like, huh, that was, that was the best thing I've seen in a really long time. So you just recently watched all of it, right? I had seen the first season, and yeah. then... Um... And you were like... That's that's cool. I liked it a lot. Yeah. I liked it a lot. I wouldn't say that it was my favorite show that ever happened. I think I actually liked the first season of Killing Eve more as Phoebe Waller-Bridge mm-hmm. projects go because I thought it seemed like a higher degree of difficulty in a way. Sure. But I liked it and I recognized that she was a very sophisticated and very funny writer and a 
really gifted performer. And I think that's probably one of the understated aspects of this is just how good yeah. she is in this show. Yeah. And I knew that season two was a big deal. Allison Herman has been telling us for months that this show is a big deal. And I, I, I believe her. But I wanted my wife to watch it. Yeah. And that was why I waited. And she finally got around to season one. And then I watched two episodes of season two and I could sense something happening that was very powerful. And I said, actually, I'm going to stop and I'm going to wait for Eileen to be ready. And she was ready. And so we watched it this weekend. And you said, I, and you, you don't, you're not much of a phone guy, but you said you were almost going to call me when you finished. Yeah, because I was blown away. Yeah. And it's, it, it's interesting because you do this for a living. You talk about TV all the time. You and I are spending a lot of personal time together these days and when we're doing so for the last 10 years. And when we're doing so, we do talk about this stuff. Uh-huh. Like it's, it's, not, it's not just a job. Nevertheless, I can usually feel like, oh, I'll wait to text Chris about how good Annabelle Comes Home is. You know what I mean? Like we'll, we'll get there. We'll get there sure. at, the, at a restaurant on a Friday night. This one was just different. Just different, just different and powerful, and it felt is a bit cliche, I suppose, to say it this way, but it felt a bit like finishing a great book. Yeah, where you're like, oh, you immediately have the desire to evangelize and to understand what you liked about it, and I, I, I don't even know if I can quite put my finger on it. I feel like I'm not the most qualified person to talk. No, about No, I mean, we've definitely created a platform for for white men to talk about food bag <laughs> on this podcast, so it's okay. But I, I, I think you're getting at something. That is really interesting, which is the uh, difficulty a lot of people, I, I think, are having in our, almost articulating their their relationship to the show because I wouldn't say necessarily that there's like a sliding scale or a curve by which I you know, judge television. But like I said to Andy, I think that the impact of Fleabag was at once, yeah, very intellectual, but also really, really emotional. And yet it didn't really necessarily say, it wasn't one of those things where I'm like, yeah, you wouldn't understand unless you've lost somebody or you wouldn't understand unless you have a religious background or you wouldn't understand unless you've had problems with addiction or you wouldn't. It doesn't seem to have any of those barriers of entry up. Because I think on the surface, it's just a funny show and it's a clever show. And so you can enjoy it at a very low stakes level. Mm -hmm. But if you're like me and you're very interested in the idea of the sacred and the profane and you're very interested in the idea of propriety and and breaking the fourth wall of existence, it's the perfect show. And I don't just mean looking at the camera. I mean spending one season looking at the camera and then having a second season in which a character notices that you're looking at the camera and the kind of it, it requires a kind of intellectual acrobatics that is pretty rare on TV. And your workaday sitcom, even your absolute gold-plated top-level sitcom Mm -hmm. on HBO can't usually pull this kind of thing off. And in fact, when they do it, demands a series of think pieces. Here, it actually just feels natural and and is enjoyable. And then on top of that, like you said, it's a show about loss. It's a show about grappling with faith. It's a show about addiction. It's a show about relationships with siblings. It's a show about the complexities and difficulties of marriage. It's got a lot of themes and all told, the whole series is what? Less than six hours? Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, we're watching a lot of TV these days. Most shows are just not about anything. <laughs> yeah, they're not about anything. And I think that this show is def- definitely feels rooted in her background in the theater. Because when you go see a great play, maybe there's like six people in it that are that are like important characters at the most. Sometimes it's two, sometimes it's one. But the scope of what they're talking about uh, emotionally, morally, dramatically, intellectually, all that is like huge. It can be as huge as Angels in America or it could be as huge as Hamilton or it could be – it doesn't necessarily correspond to the size of the production. It's the size of the ideas. 
And one of the things I really liked about about Fleabag season two was the way in which it probed sort of spiritual questions without being a spiritual show necessarily. Oh, no question. Yeah. yeah I mean, the whole, shall we talk about the hot priest? Is yeah, that let's some, do it. something you want to yeah, yeah. do? Full disclosure, I've never seen Sherlock. Okay. So I have no relationship to Andrew Scott, yeah. the actor. I, yeah, yeah. I, I, did, I did see him almost immediately after finishing the series on the new episode of Black Mirror, mm-hmm. the second episode of this new season. And when I was watching the show with my wife, she said, she used a word that I, I think I've maybe heard her say out loud four or five times in, in our life together, which was sexy. Mm. He's sexy. And I think that that's right. And I think that that guy, that actor, is communicating something physically in the show that is a new sensation in a lot of ways. This isn't like cheeky Jude Law is the hot Pope stuff. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's like there is a real natural energy between the two of them and the fact that his character is a priest. And if you're Roman Catholic like me, you know that um, that is a very (laughs) – sacred is not the word. Like that is a complex uh, presentation for a figure. And that guy is just – he just has something. He has a a charisma that is indescribable, ineffable. And using a person like that as not just – as basically the driving engine of your story Mm -hmm. is so powerful. And so unpredictable, even though you know where the show is going the whole time. Even though you know, spoiler alert for anybody who's not seen the series, they don't end up together. Yeah. The mechanics of what she's done, coupled with Scott's performance, is just so crazy good. What was your perception of hot hot priest culture? That that was great. I think it's it's just, it's always so fun when unintended consequences come of shows. It's, It's sort of like the Barb from Stranger Things thing where it's like, these shows just get talked about and chewed over and recontextualized in a way that uh, you can have a hot priest rather than, I think what he's supposed to be is her, her she's, he's taking confession from her and it just takes those six episodes for her to arrive at a truth. But it's, I, I, so I really like the way it was, it was it sort of permeated throughout the culture, but their relationship specifically, it was great because, to me because it sort of transcended any kind of religion. It sort of was more about, do you believe that there is a purpose to being here? And you are somebody who has tried to obliterate your own life at times and has sort of put a lot of things in jeopardy by your behavior. But is there a greater purpose for your existence and for your life? And is there a reason why you should be a good person without being all bloodlines about it and being like, am I a good person or am I a bad person? It's just great writing. And I don't know if it comes to a conclusion. You know, I think that that's one thing is it's not moralizing in any way. Mm -hmm. Fleabag, by design, is a very, very flawed character. And even in the second season where she's trying to kind of reconcile her feelings and be better, and there's this big to-do in the first episode, that almost like chamber piece restaurant sequence where— it's like a bottle episode, basically. Yes, where she's kind of—her family can't believe how decent she's being, Mm -hmm. and— there's something so clever about that construction because it points out that she's just such an asshole in the first season. Yeah. And she certainly has plenty of asshole tendencies in the second season too. But typically what we learn when we watch conventional TV programming and movies is love conquers all and solves problems. And that's not the lesson of this show. Like maybe Mm self-love can be helpful, but them not ending up together, even though that's the only thing that she wants. And she literalizes it to him at the end of the show. It's not 
a solution. It's not even a Band-Aid. It's just something that can be acknowledged or not acknowledged. I It just felt like a very radical approach to to telling a story. Yeah, and even that there, there were certain things that it captured that I find so difficult to kind of highlight as is anything that you would say, oh, any other show had done. But like that moment from after they consummate their relationship to through the wedding and the difference in the way that episode is shot, which is a little bit more handheld and the takes are a little bit longer, but the way they capture how she keeps going for those smoke breaks and she clearly doesn't feel like she's on solid footing with him. Like she knows that she's living in basically this right before I begin my descent moment. Purgatory. Yeah, but she's like, I... I can't believe how much I love this person and I got to to break through and touch him and I know deep down inside that this isn't going to work and I'm basically like walking around and like smoking and fretting away this day and trying to help out wh- where I can and obviously she finds a lot of closure with her father and with her sister throughout that day and it's a really important important episode but yeah like that the way they characterize that moment of she's the only one who really understands what's going to happen to her next and everybody else is kind of going about there. I thought that was such like a such a hard thing to do and then you just pull back and you're like, "Oh yeah, it's also such a hard thing to do in 22 minutes of an episode." Yeah, and just the whole concept of the forbidden and the unholy mm-hmm. is just so heavy. <laughs> so yeah. it, it, the show never makes you feel that way. Yeah. But if you examine what's actually happening on the surface, I mean, this would be the scandal of a lifetime. Sure. To essentially defrock a priest (laughs) in real time. Yeah. Uh, But the show makes it very much about these two people and ultimately about this one person and what this one person is going through. Now, I think some of the best parts of the show are everything that happens with Fleabag's sister, Mm -hmm. everything that happens with her husband, that sort of meltdown from Brett Gelman at the end of the series, (laughs) that speech is just, and even that is that heavy fourth wall breaking where she turns to the camera and she's like, I feel a speech coming on. Yeah. And then what you do get is this extraordinarily well-written speech delivered passionately by Brett Gelman. But, it's still with artifice around it. You yeah. know, there's just something so satisfying about that. And it could be winky, winky, nudge, nudge about, it could be very Monty Python. And it doesn't play that way. It feels real. It feels, I feel like the word earned is sort of a catchphrase in TV criticism in the in the last couple of years. Of course, but yeah. There's something very earned about the actual pain and the ridiculous commentary that comes alongside of it. Do you find that this is show has sort of, uh, I guess transcended the way we usually talk about TV. I haven't seen a single dissenting hot opinion. take about this show. I don't know. I mean, I've not seen a show that has this kind of discoverability legs. Mm-hmm. Like at work, we're always talking about like God. The me- the moment just vanishes. It just slips through our yeah. fingers. If we if we're not there twelve hours later, what do we do? And I've certainly felt it with Thrones. It's like I now feel like Game of Thrones never happened. It's been like two <laughs> weeks, and now I'm like, well, <laughs> I guess there's never been a popular TV show. Sure. This is slightly different, which is that there has been, I think the cresting has been, It's the wave has gotten longer and longer. Mm-hmm. And it's maybe not a huge wave. Maybe it's just a four or eight footer. But it's people, a lot of people are riding it right now. And I don't know. I mean, you certainly could have some basic dissension that you just don't think she's very charming maybe. Yeah, or, or I don't like the know. fourth wall thing yeah. or it's not my, you know, I, I think a lot of I'm people scandalized by it or whatever, yeah. Yeah, I think I think even you might have said to me that you were not as crazy about some of the like turn to the camera stuff in the first season. I just, I think I felt a little like it was, it was a little showy, but that's yeah. not, it, that's not, it wasn't necessarily like I was like, you broke the rules. It was more like, it just wasn't my, my tempo, right. but like a lot of weird stuff is my tempo. So mm-hmm. I, I was more just like, I just never caught the frequency it was on last time and this time 
I don't know what it was. I maybe it was the combination of of because it's not like she's not vulnerable in the first season. It's it's I think she just feels a little bit more three dimensional in this season. And the and the yeah. remarkable thing about all of the characters are she just cuts out all the crap you don't really need to know about these people, mm-hmm. and you're just unbothered by well, where did this priest come from? And what was his job before that? And what was his life before this? And where will he go now after he leaves the bus stop? It just doesn't matter. Yeah, and in some ways, that probably makes life easier for them as writers. You know, they don't have to worry about that as much. I was thinking a little bit about the arc of succession as you were talking and where you, admittedly, you were the first, you were the first man in line and saying that this show <laughs> kicks ass yeah. and you, you caped for it very early on. But for the most part, I think most people didn't really catch on until maybe about the fifth episode. Mm-hmm. And about the fifth episode of Succession would be about the conclusion of Fleabag in terms of how much time of people had invested. Fleabag. yeah. 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 And we take it as understood when there's a 12 episode Netflix series or a 23 episode network series that it's going to take a little while to get invested. What you need is you need to be shot out of a cannon in the pilot and then be patient for a little while. Fleabag is not doing that. It's obviously using the British model. It's obviously using a model that just makes more sense to people right now. Chernobyl hit for a couple of reasons. It's obvious. I thought it was really well made and is a fascinating historical document, but it was just conquerable. Mm Mm-hmm. It was five hours, five and a half hours. This show is five and a half hours. People want to have those experiences at home more so than I watched. And I think this has changed radically even in the last two years than I watched all 79 episodes of Breaking Bad. Sure. I don't think that that is as much currency. I I completely agree with you because I have like a couple of things out there that I'm like, you know what? I'm going to go back and watch all of this. And some some of it's stuff I just completely missed. Some of it's stuff that's right up my alley that I'm like, this one's for me. I'm just going to go watch it. What's on your list right now? Well, there's this show from the guy who did Bodyguard. Uh, and they've actually advertised on the pod, so I, I don't want to make it sound like it's Spawncom, but it's this show called Line of Duty. Mm-hmm. And the season that's out in England now, season five, I believe it is, and there's six episodes each, an hour each. And each season is a different tale of police corruption, but with some shared characters that are throughout mm-hmm. the seasons. And this season, it's Stephen Graham, Keely Hawes, who was obviously in Bodyguard, was on seasons two and three, I think, and Dandy Newton was on season four. So I'll have like a guest star in the Stephen Graham season. It's just getting a lot of rave reviews, and people are like, this show is just on another level right now. But I'm like, I kind of want to watch all, th- all 30 hours of it. Right. But I don't really have 30 hours. Yeah. It's a challenge. I mean, I think about it on the movie side all the time, too, where I'm, I'm trying to see virtually every studio-released movie that isn't like yeah. a kid's movie that comes out. But at some point, you find yourself in the second hour of The Secret Life of Pets 2, and you're like, what am I doing here? <laughs> yeah. You know, and I think a lot of people feel that with a lot of TV shows, too, where they start something up. I had That was my experience with The Society, which I really wanted to like and thought had a great premise. And by hour two, I was just like— if this was on the WB, I would ignore it. Yes. And I tried it because it's on Netflix. Yes. And th- there's just a little bit of a, I don't know, like a, a curiosity incoherence at the moment. Sure. That I think we're all trying to work our way yeah. through. And then, and so I've, Fleabag is, is, a, is, a, is a, a, a bomb for that. And it's also the thing where you're like, give me this three hours or whatever it is because I guarantee you won't be disappointed. Right. I want to talk, because a little earlier today, I asked you if you wanted to talk about the Bob Dylan, the Martin Scorsese documentary. Sure. And I said, have you seen it? Which was a stupid question. But I think you said you've seen it twice already. I watched it a second time last night. I saw it at Netflix uh, last week. I'm a very big Dylan fan. I'm not a Dylanologist by any means, but partially I just love the uh, stimulation that Bob Dylan's music gives other people. Mm -hmm. uh, Because 
you see great writing about it. I think you mentioned in a tweet today the David Remick piece, Elizabeth Nelson and Scott Tobias wrote pieces for The Ringer this week about the Rolling Thunder documentary that's on Netflix. Why do you, you I take it you love this movie. Well, I take it you're beguiled by it. It's definitely my favorite movie of the year. Fuck yes. I just spoke about it a little bit on a podcast with Rob Harvilla, but I'm happy to- You can double dip. To double dip a little bit. It is not a conventionally good movie. And so I think you need to kind of check that at the door Mm -hmm. if you want to enjoy it. I think if you are interested in the mythos of Dylan, it's much more effective. I will say from a purely rock concert doc perspective, there's just a moment very early on in the film where Dylan is singing Isis so aggressively and so almost angrily. It's where he doesn't have the guitar in his hands. He doesn't right? have the yeah. guitar in his hands. And he's snapping his voice. And I've just never seen anything like it. And it's a it's a very basic opinion to say Bob Dylan is a genius who should be celebrated. I don't care. Like, it's just an amazing document. And the, the moment in time the, the film captures him in is 1975. So between the 1966 and 1974, Bob Dylan essentially disappears from public view. Mm -hmm. He releases four or five albums. A couple of them are great. A couple of them are not good at all among his worst. He does not tour at all. In 1974, he comes back with the band. They do a big stadium tour. It's a big sellout tour. That tour and the Crosby, Sills, Nash & Young tour from that time are two of the biggest tours in the history of music. They're playing like mega stadiums. Like Wembley. They're playing huge places. One year later, Dylan has the idea to do essentially a turn-of-the-century-inspired traveling medicine show, a carnival. And what he's going to do is pluck a handful of people from his universe or people that he admires or likes or sees in the horizon. That includes his old paramour, Joan Baez, who he reunites with. That includes Sam Shepard, the playwright. Mm-hmm. That includes Alan Sam Ginsberg. Shepard, definitely my favorite part of this movie. He's amazing in this movie. <laughs> um, Scarlett Rivera, a violinist. Um, that he like almost ran over down on the Lower East Side. According to him, but there's also, yeah. that's a whole other layer of this. There's a myriad other people in the movie. Mick Ronson, David Bowie's band leader, is his guitarist on stage throughout this film. T-Bone Burnett, it's when they first start to collaborate together. So many amazing musicians and storytellers and weird figures of 70s Arcana. Yeah. And simultaneously... Dylan is making a movie during this experience that is loosely scripted by Sam Shepard, but basically just improvised. Yeah, and then that became Ronaldo and Clara, right? That's right. So Ronaldo and Clara is this very messy four-hour movie that basically makes no sense. Okay. It's a tough watch. But what we see in this new movie by Martin, Martin Scorsese is what is presented to us as documentary from a man named Stefan von Dorp, who was shooting all of this. Now, Stefan von Dorp is not real. Yeah. The man who plays him, I, his name escapes me it's right like now. like a performance artist, right? He is the husband of Bette Midler, okay. who is one of Bob Dylan's oldest friends. And in fact, you see, can see Bette Midler very briefly in this film. That guy didn't shoot any of this stuff. Um, and all of that footage is largely from Ronaldo and Clara. So what you get is this weird intellectual dissonance between what's real and not real. And at one point, Dylan says, life isn't about finding yourself. It's about creating yourself. And that is the mantra of Bob Dylan. That is the whole... Yeah creation mythology around Bob Dylan. Right. And I don't, the reason I like the movie so much, aside from the obvious chills that some of the songs sound down, send down my spine, is I've never seen a document so clearly present what Dylan is trying to say. Mm-hmm. Most of the time, you, you can't fully grasp it. And even though everyone's lying in this movie, 
and 30% of it is completely fabricated. Yeah, there's like a Jim Giannopoulos who now runs Paramount. Jim Giannopoulos, yeah, it's a, it's a fascinating aspect. Jim Giannopoulos, who is a longtime film executive who worked, I believe, at Sony for years and now runs Paramount, is presented in the movie as the concert promoter who came up with the idea for the Rolling Thunder review. That's just not true. Yeah. So, like, I don't even know if Jim Giannopoulos ever went to any of these shows. He I don't was, even like, at Fordham at the time. But it, 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 this is the best part about it is that a lot of people's relationship to Dylan not only— is tied up in their memory, but tied up in their self-projection. And there's this great David Rimmick piece today where he talks about going to see the Rolling Thunder show in Massachusetts. And one of the wild things about the first leg of this tour was that it basically just played New England. He just played like Plymouth and Worcester and, and Waltham. and He's these... playing 3,000-seat amphitheaters. Yeah. I mean, imagine seeing this incredibly powerful band featuring the most important songwriter of his generation— just kicking ass in front of like 2,500 people. Yeah, you don't even have to imagine because there's a couple of shots of the crowd after the shows are over and there's just people crying. There's a woman breaks down crying once the show concludes. Yeah. And I was I was kind of like, I get it. Yeah. It's not too melodramatic to be that invested in the story. And it, it, it's so strange because, and, and Rob and I talked about this a little bit, Dylanology is a little bit of a groan-worthy subject. Mm-hmm. And it, it, it's a little bit of a like... It's the most overcovered thing in the universe. Well, it's almost it, I I hesitate to say that it it's just become a little bit of archaeology at this point because the the role that he filled in the culture just doesn't really exist anymore. Right. As like a bellwether, you know, truthsayer about the state of the world who also spoke in a language that was almost entirely his own creation, but drew from American folk tradition and theater and all this stuff that was running through his songs. I hesitate to say this because I don't want to downplay the contributions of anybody now, but the idea of the most famous person in the world also being the most acute critic and chronicler of the time is not something I think we we really have right now. So there's an interesting thing also about his persona in that respect in the movie. On the one hand, he sings one more cup of coffee in the movie, and he says, her heart was like an ocean, mysterious and dark. And I was like, that is, it's one of the great Dylan lyrics mm-hmm. of all time. It's it's worthy of Yeats. It's worthy of William Blake. It's 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 just yeah. an incredible turn of phrase and a beautiful, fascinating song during one of his most artistically relevant periods. And then there's also a series of moments in which he isn't just this prankster and he isn't just this romantic poet. He's not Rimbaud. He's he's singing Hattie Carroll again for the first time in like 10 years. Yeah. And he, it's, this is where he writes Hurricane. And this is when he meets Reuben Carter and writes this freedom anthem that is meaningful. He visits a Native American tribe and he sings the ballad of Ira Hayes to the tribe. And they're genuinely societally, socially meaningful acts. Yeah. And there's, there's just not any person from John Lennon to to John Wayne, like there's just not any cultural figure that has ever been able to do that the way that he does, to be funny and clever and poetic and significant yeah, all at once. And beyond all that, beyond whether or not you want to buy into that or whether or not that just flies right over your head, if you just like rock music at all, you should watch this movie because there are moments where it's Dylan with like seven people standing around a drummer in a room the size of the one that me and Sean are recording in right now, just blowing the fucking ceiling yeah, off. David Mansfield playing lap steel guitar yeah. and Mick Ronson rocking out and Patti Smith <laughs> screaming her lyrics. Yeah. 
passionately. There was a great piece about this movie that Ann Powers wrote for NPR, and something that she identified, which hadn't really occurred to me when I was watching it, was, so this is 75, 76, and Patti Smith is a participant, and she obviously idolized Dylan. But she noted that Dylan also recognizes what Patti Smith is and what she represents, mm-hmm. and she uses the phrase, he's got punk rock in his headlights. And he's, even he senses kind of where music is going, and this kind of like ramshackle, ripcord style. yeah. Is so perfect for the time. It's like predates getting the van. Yes, and yeah. and the the version of Dylan that we have now, you know, is just not my favorite. The the sort of Sinatra balladeer thing that he has taken on in the last ten years of his career just doesn't mean as much to me. I like his music in the eighties and I like his music in the nineties, but it's just so it was like literally energizing. Yeah. To watch him rip through this movie. Okay, so people can watch that movie on Netflix. They can watch Fleabag on Amazon. They can listen to Sean on the Big Picture. Thanks for coming on, man. That's it? That's all you want to talk about? What else? <laughs> well, Have you seen any MCU movies lately? Uh, I haven't. They, they've put any out since Avengers? No, Did no. I miss any? Spider-Man Far From Homecoming. I'm trying to remember if I have anything that I want to recommend. Oh, are you excited for Too Old to Die Young? Oh, yes. Nicholas Winding Refn show? Yeah. Um, insofar as one can be excited. So you do you know the bit? Naven and I, I think, are going to talk about this on Money, but okay. do you know what's been happening with this? No. So, shout out. I mean, like, I'm. I can't be more. I, I'm just really, really, really dialed into this thing. It's it's Nicholas Winding Refn. I think they're basically calling it a 13 hour movie. Okay. And it's Miles Teller. No play, one's ever done that before. He, Miles Teller <laughs> plays a cop in L.A. Uh, I don't really know what it's about. It's it's. I think it has something to do with cartels. It just looks a lot like uh, Only God Forgives, but set in L.A. Okay. And Amazon was like, you guys can see the fourth and fifth episode. That's what premiered at Cannes. Mm-hmm. Okay, but no, none of the, so none nobody of, knows what this show is like. So people haven't seen the first three episodes. No, it's coming out Friday. Okay, <laughs> what are you expecting? Uh, some really, really like out there, out there stuff. Can you just describe where you think Nicholas Winning Refn exists in the consciousness right now? Oh, I think that we're looking at it. It's like you and me. Oh, like we're the only fans left? No, I I just think that like if I say Nicholas Winding Refn to half of our staff, they would just be like the what, like, and I was like, he directed Drive. They'd be like, I like Drive. And they would have no idea what he's done since. I, I mean, I think I've heard, I, there's a few Neon Demon fans out there. There's a few Too Old to Die Young fans out there. But this is something that he's been working on for a while. So this is a 13-hour movie that's appearing on Amazon mm-hmm. on Friday. That no one has, like, there's no, like, you have to watch this because it's a masterpiece pieces out there now. It's a tough beat. Or is it a great beat? I don't know. I can't wait to see it, though. I'm looking forward to it as well. Where are you at on Only God Forgives these days? Still has a great trailer. <laughs> Still has a great Great score. score. Cliff Martinez. Uh, great score. I, in retrospect, like it a lot more because it's such a fuck you. Because it's such a difficult movie. We're about to go see Midsummer. Yes. And I think I, I turned to you and we were like, oh yeah, we're going to go see it um, soon. And I was like, I want this movie to really fuck me up. I love a nasty bit of business. Yeah. Nicholas Winning Refn definitely is still interested in a nasty bit of business. Whether he can do something coherently is a bit of a TBD. Let's find out. He's got 13 hours to play with. Okay, I look forward to it. It's, it's two full, complete runs of Fleabag. <laughs> <laughs> but with Miles Teller as a cop. Something tells me it won't be as deep. Okay, Sean, thanks for coming by. Thanks, Chris. Okay, now this is a very special segment of the Watch Podcast. I'm joined by my producer, Kaya McMullen. Kaya, say hi. Hello. Kaya, did you start watching The Society because of me? 
Yes. Well, I take your TV recommendations very seriously. Oh, thanks. Yeah, of course. Are you going to be watching Too Old to Die Young all 13 hours of it this weekend? Probably not. I'm not a Miles Teller fan. Oh, okay. I'm going to skip that one. But you did recommend The Society. You said, I think it's more fun than it should be or it deserves to be. So I was like, okay, I like a good teen soap. Yeah. I'll check it out. And that's what it is. So if you don't know, Kai and I will talk for a couple of minutes about the society very generally. And then we just have a couple of things to get off our chest that are spoilery. So broadly speaking, the society was created by Christopher Kaiser, who's the guy who created Party of Five, which is this beloved family drama from, I guess, the the 90s, if I remember correctly. Um, Scott Wolf and Matthew Fox and Nev Campbell. And he hasn't really done a ton since then. He comes out with this Netflix show. It's called The Society. It stars, among other people, Catherine Newton, who you will know as the older, as Maddie's older daughter on Big Little Lies. And it's a very, very well-designed show specifically for Netflix, I think. Yes, uh, absolutely. In the sense that it doesn't necessarily, it's not, I wouldn't call it like a punishing watch in, in any way. Like you're just like, this is very pleasant to watch, but it's really compelling. Yeah, and it's, compelling solely because you just want to find out what happens next, or at least that's what my experience was with it. Yeah, and so the, the basic premise is this. It's a small town. I think it's supposed to be in Connecticut, right? Uh, New Ham, yeah. Either Connecticut or somewhere like New Hampshire. Somewhere okay. East Coasty. Yeah, and so these kids, it's like a senior class at a high school. The usual mixture of nerds and jocks and cool kids and bad boys and whatever relatively sexually fluid and progressive and lots of different things going on in the bedroom of these kids, but they're all there. I would not put it on the level of debauchery as euphoria, which we'll talk about (laughs) next week, but it definitely, they get after it. They go on a senior trip or a a high school trip. And uh, when they come back, they're dropped off in the town square by a a series of a group of buses about, I don't know, like a hundred kids or however many it is. They get off the buses And it becomes quickly apparent that everyone else has vanished from the town. And the town is now encircled by forest, like, that they can't get through. So they're just basically trapped in this town. They've got electricity. They don't have internet. They've got whatever food was remaining. They don't have internet or electricity, but they do have the ability to text and call each other. Yes. Very interesting wrinkle there. Okay, sure. And, you know, there's a lot of different theories that basically they, they have to do everything that a society, hence the name, would do. They have to create a way of producing and meeting out like and, and rationing food. They have to have a security or police force. They have to have some sort of governing body. They have to have everybody agree to do different chores and jobs around the town so that the town continues to work. They divide up who lives where and like with whom. And there are some characters who rise to power and some characters who fall away from power. And it's just a fascinating mixture of high school teenage drama and also weird dystopian (laughs) sci-fi, right? And also like socialism? Yeah, I guess so. I think that that's definitely (laughs) Catherine Newton's character, Allie, is definitely like everybody has to work. Everybody, no matter who they were before this happened, is on the level playing field, although that kind of gets distorted over the course of the year. Right. And there's just this really interesting, like, what would you be in the post, 
not post-apocalypse because they're pretty sure the world is still out there somewhere. They just don't know how to get back to it. But, you know, the basically the football team becomes the security force. Yes, the guard. Yes. So there's lots of twists in this show. There's lots of, like, fun, like, well, how the hell are, what, what's going on? Are they in an alternate timeline or universe? And uh, we, I won't give away the last twist, but let's talk a little bit about our favorite parts of the show. So, what, Kyle, what's your, like, favorite part of the show? Where are we in spoiler territory we can start spo- now? Okay. We can start spoiling it now. I think the moment I decided that I was all in on this show, or not all in, but I was definitely going to keep watching, was once the sister dies. Cassandra. Cassandra. Yes. Great bangs. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And basically, they hold a prom. That's another aspect I like, that it kind of has still all of the elements of what makes a good teen show. They have the prom. They have the parties. They have, like— the love triangles, et cetera, et cetera. But then it's like this undercurrent of almost like politics and the central struggle between do you decide to go with this system where everybody helps out everybody and like everybody's working together or is it going to be every man for himself? Right. And the every man from himself people are essentially guys who were running the town before this happened. So it's like this guy, Harry, who is like a spoiled rich kid and this dude Campbell, who's basically a sociopath. And they basically want to take back power through might rather than democratic consensus. And then there is Kai and I's favorite character, Lexi, who is an improv actress. God damn it, Lexi. And she, uh, she is one of the people who leads like a rebellion against Allie. It's just, it's all like almost a, populist rebellion? I don't know. I don't know. It seems like she's mostly like, I don't have, yeah, I guess so. It's more Trumpian because it's more like, I don't have like a plan myself. I just know that I don't want Allie in charge. Right, exactly. And also kind of like, you guys didn't get to decide that this is going to be the way it is. Because basically what happens is once Cassandra dies, Allie, the younger sister, just kind of steps in. With and- with the backing of the, the what they call the guard, which right. is like the security team, which is the football team. <laughs> which right. is actually, the football guys are my favorite. Me too. Yeah, Me too. Grizz and Luke and all these guys. And they do a good job of kind of... Yeah, it's like a little bit like every one of these guys basically has like a quirk that you're like, oh, okay, so Grizz is gay. And Grizz Luke is, is my favorite. Yeah, Grizz is your favorite. That's my wife's favorite too. Uh, he's very smart, very yeah. intellectual. There's a lot of cool little mysteries like Pamela Adlin, her daughter, like you may know her from Better Things and everything. Her daughter is a character on the show and she's pregnant. Nobody knows who the father is. Oh, yeah. Um, you've got Grizz and his burgeoning discovery of his own sexuality. You've got what the hell is going on? They create a team, basically like the smart kids and the brave kids who are willing to go exploring to go figure out where they are. When. Yeah, they call it like the committee to get us home or something. <laughs> yeah, that's a snap. I could come up with a better title. <laughs> ask me. Ask me next time. Uh, they are going off to like look for farmland and stuff. I don't know. They certainly knew that they had something good here because uh, it's certainly set up for a second season. Oh, I would, yeah. I would imagine that second season is coming next year. I give it a, a hearty recommend, especially as we get into summer, as Game of Thrones recedes in the background. I just think people would enjoy this show. It is. It's very enjoyable. I will say that if it had it was something that had been on week to week, I probably wouldn't have stuck with it. But 
because it was on Netflix and because I could watch it all over like one week, basically. And almost every single episode ha- ends with some sort of cliffhanger. Yeah, yeah. So you're just like, okay, let's watch the next one. Let's find out what happens. Just because a lot of the dialogue is a little tough, a little overdone. <laughs> yeah. But it's they, they've all got a very naturalistic Friday Night Lights way of acting. Oh, so yeah. it's very, very loose and kind of like, it feels pretty real for as ridiculous as it is. So we're recommending the society, at least Kai and I are. You, know, you heard Sean's skepticism a little earlier. Uh, thanks for listening to The Watch. In terms of what you guys should be checking out for future episodes of The Watch, if you want to like sort of watch along with shows with us, I think Adam Naiman and I are going to talk about the first two episodes of Too Old to Die Young on Monday. And I'll also be talking to Allison Herman about the first episode of Euphoria. So... Try and get a little big little eyes in there as well. But that's a lot of stuff to watch over the weekend. So if you want to catch up, that's what you got on your plate. And yeah, we'll just keep going along. And we have plenty of stuff coming up. Dark, a bunch of shows coming up. So I'm really excited. Should be a cool summer. I'm sure we'll have Greenwald back on soon. So uh, we'll talk to you soon. <laughs>